Today we begin our spring academic lecture series. You are well aware we celebrate the 500th anniversary uh, this year as we've been focusing on the Protestant Reformation. And I'm really thrilled to introduce uh, our lecturer for today and tomorrow, Dr. Timothy George. Uh, Dr. George has been the Dean of Beeson Divinity School in Birmingham since its inception in 1988. Y you may be interested to know this though, um, Dr. George is actually from the Chattanooga area. His bachelor's degree is from UTC, uh, maybe one of the first uh, speakers in these series from UTC. He went on and did a THD, a PhD at this small school called Harvard, but um, but he loves this city, he has a heart for this city, he knows its history and, and is concerned about it. Dr. George is, it's, I'm thrilled that he's here because this is a busy year for him, given his expertise, he has uh, literally traveled around the world speaking on these very issues of the Reformation. For one thing, he's the general editor of a massive, what's called the Reformation Bible Commentary series of 28 volumes, kind of looking at the exegetical works of the reformers. He's prolific, has written more than 20 books. For our purposes, probably the two that stand out are his volume recently on reading scripture with the reformers and his classic that's now has a 25th anniversary called Theology of the Reformers, which is a standard textbook uh, used throughout the country and beyond. Uh, today he will be, uh, for his series, he'll be focusing on the importance of scripture using uh, three particular uh, Reformation theologians to think through it. Today in chapel he'll be talking, but then also today at 4 o'clock in Mills 180, and yes, you can get chapel credit. Uh, and then don't forget, we have chapel here tomorrow at 11. With that said, please join me in welcoming Dr. Timothy George. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Well, it's an honor to be here at Covenant College back in or near my hometown of Chattanooga. I was born at Erlanger Hospital. Have any of you ever heard of that hospital? I think it's still in town. In the year 1950, probably before your grandparents were born. But anyway, I've been around a little while, and it's always a joy to come back to this wonderful, beautiful Chattanooga area. Even on a foggy day like this, Lookout Mountain is great. So, what am I going to do? Three talks. Today, William Tyndale. This afternoon, Martin Luther. And tomorrow, Desiderius Erasmus. Now, those of you that are really, 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 really smart have already detected that I am doing these three characters in reverse chronological order. Tyndale, Luther, Erasmus. Why is that? Well, I think Tyndale is the most accessible in some ways because what I want to talk about him with you today is how he gave us our English Bible. I bet every one of you has your own copy of the Bible. Do you? Maybe different translations, different versions, but you have your own Bible. You don't even think about it. It's just a part of your life. Probably has been since you were really little. Well, we should think about it because that is not something that has always been so common. 
and William Tyndale reminds us of why that is the case. The Danish philosopher Søren Kierkegaard once wrote that purity of heart is to will one thing. And throughout history, it has often been the case that those who have counted the most, those whose influence has lingered the longest, have been men and women of faith who have willed one thing. Paul, the apostle, writing to the Philippians, this one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining forward to what is ahead, I press toward the goal, the prize, one thing. Well, William Tyndale was such a person. His life is marked by a striking single-mindedness. While still in his 20s, younger than some of you, William Tyndale became convinced that God was calling him to translate the scriptures into his native English tongue. And he gave himself to this task unstintingly at great personal risk, eventually at the cost of his own life. It is not too much to say that under God, we owe our English Bible to William Tyndale. Now, before I tell you that story, I want to make a preliminary comment about the translatability of the Bible. The translatability of the Bible is inherent in the very nature of Christianity itself. The Word became flesh. The incarnation, that itself is a great act of translation. And the Christian faith has always taught that God's written word, the Bible, can be and should be translated into any language human beings can speak. And this sets Christianity apart from a number of other world religions, like Islam, which also has a holy book, the Quran believed to be directly given by God. But it is the very revealed Word of God, so Muslims teach, only in the Arabic language. Now, you can go and buy a translation of the Quran at any good bookstore, but if you notice, it will say, in small print usually, this is an interpretation of the Quran. Christians say that the Bible can be translated into any language human beings can speak. And so it has been throughout the centuries. Going back to the early church, when St. Jerome translated the Bible into Latin, the Vulgate, it was called. And this became the standard translation of the Bible for more than a thousand years. William Tyndale was not the first person to try to bring the Bible into English. You've heard of John Wycliffe, called the Morning Star of the Reformation. He had done something like this, too, back in the 14th century. He was a professor at Oxford. He had a number of friends and helped him translate the Bible into English. But they did it from the Latin text of the Vulgate, not from the original Greek and Hebrew. They didn't have access to that. 
it was against the law also to put the Bible into English. Wycliffe's followers were called lollards from the Dutch word lallen, which means to mumble, because they would be heard mumbling the scriptures, reading the scriptures in out-of-the-way places, in caves, in hulls of ships, in the open fields at night, because if they were discovered, they could face severe punishment. Now, between Wycliffe and Tyndale, Wycliffe died in 1384, and Tyndale was born in 1494, in that century or so that separate these two great figures, two amazing things happened that changed forever the whole way we understand and have access to the Bible. The first one was the invention of the printing press. This happened in the mid-15th century, 1455. Uh, a worker in gold, a goldsmith named Gutenberg, mastered the typographical revolution and published in Mainz the first book. It was the Bible in Latin in double columns of Gothic print. There are only a few left in the world. If you have one, you're very rich because they're extremely expensive. But this printing press spread all over Europe. It was like an amazing ditto device that worked like magic. Before that, it would take a scribe a whole year or more to produce an entire copy of the Bible. Now, with the printing press, it could be done in just a matter of hours and days. And these printing presses sprang up all over Europe. They became franchised, kind of like McDonald's in our age. Every town worth its salt had a printing press. That was one thing. The second thing that happened that went along with the printing press was what we might call the new learning. Uh, it was the age of the Renaissance, which brought about a recovery of classical languages and a critical study of ancient sources. Uh, scholars began to delve into the history of language and the history of manuscripts. Erasmus was one of the greatest. I'm going to say a little bit more about him tomorrow. Uh, and when Luther translated the Bible into German and Tyndale translated the Bible into English, they both had at their side a copy of Erasmus' Greek New Testament, the 1519 edition, using it as the basis of their translation. Okay, enough about that. Who was William Tyndale, and how did he get interested in this work? Well, he was born in Gloucestershire. That's a county in the western part of England, not too far from Bristol or Bath, if you've been there. He was bright. He went to Oxford. He earned a bachelor's degree in 1512, got a master's degree in 1515, and we think migrated over from Oxford to Cambridge for a period of study. Well, if you visit Cambridge today, have any of you ever been to Cambridge? Yeah, a couple of you have. It's a beautiful university city. I like Cambridge much better than Oxford, just like some people like Yale better than Harvard. They don't know any better. But uh, Cambridge is a beautiful city. And if you go to King's College, right there in the heart of, of the university, and there's a little alleyway right next to King College, and somebody has put a little 
blue oval-shaped medallion that says this is the spot, the place, where the White Horse Inn stood at the time of the Reformation. What was the White Horse Inn? It was a tavern. But it was a place where scholars who were interested in the Reformation would come together and they would study the Bible. They called it Little Germany because they would also read the, the works of Martin Luther, which were beginning to be translated into English themselves. And here, a number of people who later became martyrs of the Christian faith, people like Thomas Bilney, who was burned alive at the stake in Norwich, the city of Norwich, his hometown, in 1531, or John Frith, who was burned alive at the stake in 1533, or Robin Barnes, who had studied for a while with Martin Luther. He too suffered a similar fate in 1540. We think all of these early martyrs of the English Reformation gathered to study the Bible and what we would call to have a kind of a Christian Bible study in the White Horse Inn. Well, in that group most likely was William Tyndale as well because somewhere there was born in his heart this single-minded passion that God wanted him to translate the Bible into his native English tongue. He once said in conversation with an older cleric who thought that was a bad idea, people have priests, why do they need Bibles? Tyndall declared, if God spares my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth a plow to know more of the scriptures than thou doest. He was not trying to win friends or influence people. And that comment cost him his job. He was a teacher in an English manner. He lost his job, but he never lost his desire, his passion for the Bible to be in English. He came to London. He thought he would work under the uh, permission of the bishop and do this through the proper channels. The bishop had no interest in this. And so he went into a part of London where a lot of the merchants lived, people who were engaged in shipping back and forth between the continent and England. And one man in particular, a man named Henry Monmouth, who took up his cause and helped him finance a journey from England to the continent of Europe. That happened about 1524. And William Tyndale never again saw his home country after that event. He lived and died away from home. One other thing that's interesting about Tyndale, most of the great reformers, we think of Luther, we think of Calvin, we think of Cranmer, in England, you think of Martin Bucer in Strasbourg, Zwingli in Zurich, all these great reformers, almost every one of them, were married. They had families, children, sometimes grandchildren. Not so William Tyndale. He never was married. He never was still long enough to stay married or get married and support a family. And this was a part of his calling under God. Well, by 1525, Tyndale's English New Testament was ready to be printed in Germany, where he was living, in the city of Cologne on the Rhine River. 
And he found a publisher there who was willing to do it, and he started the work, and they got as far as Matthew chapter 22. And then the work was disrupted because somebody had notified the authorities of what was happening, and they came and disturbed it, arrested the printer. William Tyndale gathered up the sheets that had been printed through Matthew 22 and got the next boat south on the Rhine River, escaping in the nick of time. Well, from that event until the end of his life, about ten years later, William Tyndale's life reads like a spy novel. He's running here and there. He's ducking corners. He's hiding from pursuers. His whole life was lived on the run. He did go south to the city of Worms. You may, if you know Reformation history, know that's the same town where Martin Luther famously said in 1521, here I stand, so help me God, I can do no other. And he found a printer there, a man named Peter Schiffer, who was willing to take up where the printer in Cologne had been forced to leave off and completed the printing of the first ever New Testament in English was a great achievement. 6,000 copies of it, we think, were printed. Now, we should not imagine that these 6,000 copies were all neatly bound together as discrete books. No, they were in sheaves of paper. And how are they going to get these New Testament back to England? I mean, nobody read English in Germany, in Cologne, but they needed the Bible in English back in England where Tyndale is from. So he had this scheme. He was going to put these sheaves of the English New Testament in um, wares, in bales of cloth, in, uh, in cheese barrels, in wine casks, things that were being shipped back and forth between Germany and England. And they would place these loose-leaf sheaves of the New Testament in between these wares that were being shipped back to England. And they would somehow mark the ships so that when they got back to England, they would come to a port like Norwich or London or Bristol. Those are the three big ones. Somebody was there, notified ahead of time. The ships, be on watch for the ships. They have a code. You can tell this ship has some of the English New Testament in it. And they would take those sheaves and bind them together and make little books out of them back in England and began to distribute them underground. Of course, it was illegal to sell the Bible. When they did discover some of this, they began to burn these books at St. Paul's in London. But enough were found into the hands of the people that there began to be the germs of what will become the English Reformation. Some people say the English Reformation was just a matter of state, old lecherous Henry VIII wanted to divorce his wife, Karen, uh, Catherine, and marry that sweet young thing, Anne Boleyn, and that's what caused the English Reformation. That's not even half a truth. There's a grain of truth in it. But the English Reformation bubbled up from below, from beneath, from the ground, from these people who were reading the Scriptures and hearing in out-of-the-way places uh, preaching. And, and that not often the whole Bible, just maybe the Gospels, maybe Paul, maybe uh, some of the epistles. John Fox tells us about a farmer he knew 
who said, I'll give a wagon load of hay for one copy of the letter of James. Imagine that, a wagon load of hay for the epistle of James. What would he have given for Romans? I don't know. And it wasn't just, um, you know, the older people, the senior citizens. There was a young man named William Malden. He was 15 years of age. You know, we don't often, uh, we don't often see uh, a lot or hear a lot about teenagers in, in history. Here's one, 15 years of age. And people in his church had gotten a copy of the New Testament in English by Tyndale, and they had begun to read it in the back of the church after the service. And, and William Malden began to listen to them. And he was caught up in the story, the Bible reading sessions, even though his father had forbidden him to go to those Bible reading sessions and even beat him for doing so. Well, he went anyway. And the Reformation, the Reformed faith, took deep root in his heart from hearing the Scriptures read. A teenager, William Malden. Well, um, it was an amazing thing that William Tyndale was able to do, to give the Bible in what he called plain plowman's English. And I want to say a word about the language of Tyndale. He was an absolute genius with the English language. And this comes through in many of the phrases that have passed into subsequent versions of the Bible. Uh, let me give you a few, see if you recognize them. The city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Now when I'm, I'm giving, I'm going to give you five or six of these. Listen not just to the words, but to the cadence, to the poetry, to the rhythm in these words. This is one of my favorite. But Mary kept all those things and pondered them in her heart. That's straight out of Tyndale. Pondered. What a word. You know, sometimes we have these modern translations. I'm not against any of them. I think I've endorsed all of them. But um, sometimes we try to make things understandable in the common, and we just mess it up. And here's an example. That beautiful phrase, Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Talking about the, what the angel Gabriel had said in the coming of the baby Jesus, pondered them. One of our modern translations, Mary remembered these things and thought about them. Not the same. Pondered. The beautiful word of Tyndale. Or this one. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. You could have said when they got to Calvary, they crucified him there. But no, when they were come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. The language, the cadence, the beauty, the power, and just the language, the words Tyndale invented. Let me give you a few of those. These are words he coined that made their way into the English language. Godspeed, long-suffering, mercy seek, cast away, broken-hearted, bo-peep, like little bo-peep, rose-colored, stiff-necked. And this interesting word, I bet you use it almost every day, network. 
network. That's a Tyndale word. These words came into our language through William Tyndale. Well, I have only a few minutes left. I've got to tell you what happened to him. Well, he lived for 10 years, running, ducking, hiding, translating. He never made it all the way through the Old Testament. We do have a letter that was discovered in the 19th century in Tyndale's hand, discovered in Brussels. That's where he was imprisoned before his martyrdom. And he's writing to the commissar of the prison and he's asking for um, a coat, for some leggings, uh, a woolen shirt. And then he, he, he says, and I also ask to be allowed to have a lamp in the evening. A lamp. And there's this line, which I think is one of probably the saddest lines I have ever read from the 16th century. It is indeed wearisome sitting alone in the dark, begging for a lamp. And along with a lamp, a Hebrew Bible, a Hebrew grammar, a Hebrew dictionary. What was he doing? He was translating the Old Testament. He never made it all the way through. He never got to the Psalms. But the last word we have from William Tyndale, sitting alone in the dark in a dungeon in Brussels, facing imminent, certain martyrdom and death, he still is translating the scriptures, this one thing I do, to the very end of his life. Well, it was on a sunlit day, October the 6th, 1536, about 12 years after he had left England, William Tyndale was taken from his prison cell, strangled to death, and then his body burned at the stake. Why was he not burned alive like so many others? Well, he was a scholar. And people respected that about him, even those who had imprisoned him. And so they strangled him to death, and then they burned his body. And the last words he ever said, according to a tradition that comes through John Fox based on an eyewitness account, the last words Tyndale uttered were these, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. If these words were indeed spoken, as I think they most likely were, it would be evidence that even at the moment of his death, Tyndale was still concerned with that one thing, giving the scriptures to people who could read his native tongue. Well, in the 20th century, one of the great playwrights is T.S. Eliot. He wrote a play called Murder in the Cathedral. It was about a martyrdom, not Tyndale's, but the martyrdom of Thomas a. Becket, a medieval figure, very important in English church history. And he has... Beckett say these words, which I think apply just as well to William Tyndale as to Thomas a. Beckett. A martyrdom is never the design of man, for the true martyr is he who has become the instrument of God, who has lost his will in the will of God. Not lost it, but found it, for he has found freedom in submission to God. The martyr no longer desires anything for himself, not even the glory of martyrdom. Let's pray together.
Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the life and the witness and the martyrdom of William Tyndale, who single-mindedly gave us the English Bible. Oh God, help us never to take this great, precious gift, your holy, inspired word, for granted. But let us receive it with joy and thanksgiving that it may nourish our souls and cause us to grow closer to you every day of our life. For your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light for our pathway. In Jesus' name, amen.